Welcome to The Bear and the Ball. Nick Webster here. A few years ago, I wrote a book. It's called Rebooting Youth Soccer 2.0. Everything you really need to know, but were afraid to ask about the game of youth soccer. It's available on Amazon. It wasn't the biggest seller in the world, but yeah, sold a few copies here and there. One of the chapters was on winning and losing. And today on The Bear and the Ball, I want to replay that chapter for you. It's a fascinating insight into what is important about this game of soccer. What's important to us as parents, as coaches, and ultimately as players. Enjoy! This is The Bear and the Ball on winning and losing. Winning versus losing. Ah, that old chestnut. This is a dilemma that at times is very hard to quantify and understand. At the end of the day, a win is a win is a win. And as the late, great Liverpool manager Bill Shankly was fond of saying, if you're first, you're first. If you're second, you are nothing. The true beauty of this sport, and one of the reasons I love it so much, is because at times, there are wins that feel like wins. Wins that feel like ties, and certainly wins that feel like losses. But on the reverse side, there are of course losses that feel like a monumental win, losses that feel like ties, and the worst kind, losses where you're lower than a snake's belly. As a winner, you experience such a wide variety of emotions. To use a classic soccer cliche from the Premier League, you could be over the moon, ecstatic, on cloud nine, Relaxed, buzzing, vindicated, humble, and even empathetic to the team you've just smashed 9-0. As a loser, the emotions come even thicker. Gutted, shattered, depressed, angry, a failure, cheated, and sick as a parrot. I love that one. At the final whistle, when we cast our eyes around the playing field, we can find so many different emotional states. Both winners and losers, unable to contain their delight or frustration, and not afraid to share that feeling with anyone regardless of whether they're a teammate, family, opponent, official, or anyone within hugging or raging distance. So much of this emotion is dependent on ego, level of maturity, level of self-esteem, personality and behavioral limits set by parents. Who hasn't seen players aged 4 to 18 behave in a way that at best is embarrassing and at worst should get you locked up in some insane asylum with a straitjacket thrown in for good measure? That's why as the coach and leader, you're always a role model and should always try to set a great example. Let's be honest here. If you've been coaching for any length of time, you know that this game will put you through an emotional ringer because at its heart, soccer is a cruel, cruel game studded with occasional ridiculous highs and more often crushing lows. The emotional surge of a last minute winner in a tough game is matched on the other side by the devastation of conceding a last minute sucker punch in a game that you've dominated. These emotions are as powerful as I've ever experienced and I felt them rushing through my body at World Cup finals and during my son's AYSO games down at the local park. Hopefully I handled the emotional roller coaster of AYSO games a little better than watching England lose on penalties in two consecutive tournaments to Portugal during Euro 04 and Germany 06. These emotions, regardless of whether you're a player, coach, parent, or casual spectator, cannot and should not be underestimated or ignored. Many of us know how to handle these epic rides, and our actions are usually classy and appropriate. 
However, on the other side, oh boy, we're dealing with people who just can't handle these emotional waves. They can become a tsunami of really poor behavior that is often inappropriate and infantile. Emotions control the way you act, and when we let emotions get the better of us, nine times out of ten, the outcomes are sometimes not what we would be proud of in the cold light of day. There is nothing quite like the guilt of realizing we've displayed really poor conduct when we've actually managed to calm down and finally regained our sanity. So let's take a closer look at winning versus losing from different angles and perspectives, because it's important that we stand in the other's shoes before we become the judge and executioner, starting with opposing coaches. The Egomaniac. It's all a little foggy after all these years, plus I've headed far too many heavy, water-soaked pre-1970 leather soccer balls. However, I can't help but remember one of my first tournaments as a youth coach. It was one of those horror tournaments in San Bernardino, California. Which, if you live on the west side of LA, you know exactly what I'm talking about, because it feels like you may as well be driving to the moon. At the height of summer, it's always 100 degrees hot out there, along with a furnace-like wind. Meanwhile, in winter, it is arctic-like, with the temperature plummeting. I was with a brand new team of under 12 boys, and we'd already played our first game at 8am, meaning I'd left home at about 5am, poor me. Game two was at noon and I could sense trouble was brewing as soon as we returned to the field after a nourishing Grand Slam breakfast at Denny's. In front of us was FC Barcelona. Well, an army impersonating FC Barcelona. All the kids were dressed head to toe in the latest Barca kit with matching Nike boots. The coach, who we'll call Coach X, thankfully wasn't dressed like Pep Guardiola tight trousers, skinny tie, but he was barking out orders that would have put a marine drill sergeant to shame. I looked at my players in their generic white shirts that were not nearly as cool as the Barca and gave them the thumbs up as they looked petrified staring at this mini Spanish army across the other side of the pitch. As I always do, and I recommend you do the same as it humanizes you and your opponents, I walked over to shake hands with Coach X and establish some rapport. He looked at me as though I'd run off with his wife and ignored my outstretched hand while rebuffing my, hey coach, how you doing? How was the early game? We're a new team, just learning the ropes, etc, etc. Cue to the game and within 10 minutes it's already 3-0. By half time it was 8 and my poor guys didn't know what hit them, especially from the front line of Messi, Neymar and Suarez who looked suspiciously like they were 18. Their bench, which was groaning under the weight of seven subs, several of whom looked bored and frustrated, didn't move as Coach X began the second half with the same starting lineup. 8 0 had become 13 0 before I had time to apply SPF 50, and he still hadn't made any changes, which by this point had begun to irritate me. Meanwhile, my players' parents were all but ready to run across the pitch to start remonstrating with our opponent's parents who were cheering each goal with a little extra gusto as they went past my poor beleaguered keeper. Now truth be told, I'd never been on the end of a waxing like this before as a player, let alone the leader of a team, so I was in completely uncharted territory. Up until this point, I'd fancied myself as a decent coach. I'd taken my United States Soccer Federation D license, I'd coached high school and had some success, but this was my first taste of complete and utter destruction. 
competitive travel soccer was something else. I was wondering if Coach X was ever going to take off his MSNN, Messi, Suarez and Neymar forward lineup, which he finally did with 10 minutes to go in the game of 30-minute halves and the score 16-0. Eventually, the game that would never end was put to bed by the referee and we did the customary high fives at the halfway line. Now, what I remember most from this embarrassing introduction to my competitive club coaching career was not the complete and utter hammering by an opponent. Instead, it was Coach X's attitude and demeanor that made this loss so memorable. As competitive as I was, I really didn't care that much that we'd lost because, quite simply, they were the better team. I didn't care that we had barely crossed midfield throughout the match. The fact of the matter was that Barcelona was very good and we were very bad, plain and simple. However, Coach X wasn't a very good winner. He wasn't a very good sport. He wasn't gracious at all. He didn't even try to hide the fact that my team being on the pitch with his team of superstars was an insult to his sensibilities and a big joke. He was a complete ass who openly poked fun at my team and me. And to add a little more insult to injury, as we shook hands for the first time after the match, he said with phony sincerity, Gee, that was a great match you played against me. You've got a good team. Note that he said played against me and not his team. Kochex, in my opinion, was a loser with some serious self-esteem problems. At the very least, he could have shown my team respect and kindness. He owed them some basic common courtesy. He owed them a chance to lose with dignity. He didn't need his team to go easy on us. However, he did owe us good sportsmanship. Instead, what he gave my team was disrespect and embarrassment. His behavior, I thought, was truly despicable and was not the behavior becoming of a champion. In my mind, it completely tarnished their victory. We need to teach our players that you don't ever want to rub your competitor's face in his loss, regardless of how nasty this opponent may have been to you in the past or how desperately you wanted to beat them. You never want to go outside of the sport to embarrass or humiliate your opponent in the process of your victory. You never want to be disrespectful regardless of your feelings about your competitor or the outcome. You want to keep your mouth shut and control yourself. This is even truer if what you have to say or do is ultimately demeaning or bad-mannered. Being a true champion means that you have to learn to conduct yourself with class regardless of the level that you compete at. Look, I get it. The world of soccer doesn't have the best role models at times. From Luis Suarez snacking on opponent's body parts to Mario Balotelli always making it about himself, professional sports stars can let their fame, money and notoriety make them believe that they can behave in a way that is different to the rest of us. To them, trash-talking and ill-discipline are tools of the trade or part of the game. However, I think deep down we know that they're acting like fools and embarrassing themselves along with their clubs, countries, and giving the sport in general a really bad name. This is not what soccer, let alone any professional game, is about regardless of the level. It is selfish and disrespectful to teammates and opponents. If you want to be a class act, you must have respect and empathy for your opponent. Empathy is having the ability to step into another's shoes and feel exactly what they are feeling. When you can truly appreciate what your opponent is feeling, then you will be hard-pressed to treat them disrespectfully. This is that basic do unto others as you would have done unto yourself rule of living. Simply put, 
you need to have a basic understanding and appreciation of what it feels like to be at the losing end. An opponent with empathy would never have done what Coach X did to my team because he would know that being treated that way by another coach feels absolutely terrible. The Coach X's of the world need to remember one thing about sports and life. What goes around will eventually come around. Athletes and coaches who rub their opponent's face in a loss will soon find themselves at the other, much more unpleasant end of the game, just like Coach X. So let's fast forward two years from this low point and back to good old San Bernardino. And who should my team get in the knockout rounds of a tournament? But FC Barcelona. Coach X was still there minus Neymar and Suarez, though he still had Messi, who now looked closer to 24 instead of 14 years of age. Over the previous two years, I'd become close to my boys. We'd worked hard on learning the fundamentals of the game and played as a team. They weren't outstanding and didn't have the ability to take a game over individually, but everyone knew their roles and respected their teammates. Coach X didn't remember my team or me, and he hadn't changed. By halftime, he was on the verge of a mental breakdown as his team was being outplayed, outfought, and outthought. To hear him screaming at young kids during that 10-minute break was to witness a very sad man. And you could tell from the body language of his players and parents that they'd rather have been anywhere else than here. They were broken. At the end of the match and a comfortable 2-0 win for my boys, I was so tempted to say something during the handshakes, but I had empathy. I didn't need to rub the result in his face, as he was in a full-on mission to do it himself. Instead of handshakes, he was kicking balls, cones, chairs and water bottles all over the place while using language that would have shamed a sailor. Remember, coach's karma is always peeking around the corner in sports, and what goes around, comes around. Being a good teammate. A good teammate will be a friend for life. But what are those qualities we look for when we're in those moments when being alone isn't an option? You as the coach need to introduce and develop the habits and mindsets of being a good teammate. Because a good teammate is an incredibly valuable asset to any team. A good teammate will always display the following. Genuine commitment. Team players should always be committed during games and practices. However, great team players are always willing to give the extra 110%. Adaptability. Instead of watching the team perform, an outstanding team player wants to make it happen through their efforts. They are flexible and can tackle new challenges without freaking out. Communication. Great teammates embrace the idea of communication clearly and confidently. They don't stay in the shadows and hide from speaking their minds about issues that matter to the team. Reliability. Who doesn't want to line up with someone who is reliable and responsible? There is nothing like looking around and knowing that your teammates will not let you down. A listener. One of the greatest qualities anybody can have is to be a listener. This is a person who considers and respects ideas of others and is not wrapped up in themselves. The helper. Don't you love it when your players help pick up equipment at the end of practice without being asked? Or they jump in and help a teammate learn a new move or technique? This is the person that involves all team members, not just the most popular. And support and respect. Instead of shutting down ideas and making fun of teammates, great teammates know the meaning of respect because respect is only received when you give it to others. 
Great teammates know when to have fun, but never at the expense of others. Understanding the X chromosome. Okay, here's an interesting scenario for those of you with daughters who play this fascinating game. How many times have you heard the following statement uttered from your daughter's lips on the way home from a practice or a game? Mum, Dad, how come so-and-so hates me whenever we beat her or them? This is a problem that happens all over sports, and in particular female sports. As a coach, you better be aware of it, or you'll be blindsided by the ferocity that the problem can grow into. On a girls U15 team I was coaching, we had a situation where we had a blue and a white team. For the sake of sanity, we'll call them that, although everyone knows that's the code for A team, B team. On the two teams, we have girls who go to the same school and are really good friends, until they get to play in a match against each other. Let's call this young female player Jane and her friend April. Why does April hate me when I beat her? Jane complained to me. We're supposed to be best friends, but after the match, she was really mean to me. She said I was a B-I-T-C-H and wouldn't talk to me all weekend. Then she posted horrible things on Facebook and Instagram about me. It makes me feel like crap, and I feel like I'm doing something wrong. I mean, do I have to play badly so she'll like me again? I just want my best friend back. Have you had that situation before? Girls competing hard against each other is what we're trying to instill, but it's one of the toughest things we as coaches have to try and at times manufacture. Society has asked our young women to prioritize socializing over being aggressive and competitive as it violates the unspoken code of conduct, namely acting like a girl. In my situation, both Jane and April have entered this unspoken dynamic, with April slighted because she was outmuscled and outplayed while Jane feels guilty for excelling and winning at a sport she clearly loves. The truly annoying aspect of this confrontation was that the next time they played one another, Jane was so passive she hardly affected the game in any way for fear of upsetting her friend again. April knew what was up, and you could tell was slightly annoyed at her friend for not trying, while both sets of parents looked beyond bemused. Try sorting that one out. In the interest of science and my own coaching sanity, I approached a colleague of mine who has two young women playing soccer and asked him about the unspoken double standard in sports. If being aggressive, competitive and striving to be the best is considered such a good thing for males, why is it seen in such an ugly negative light for young females? Why can't girls and women feel great about getting stuck in, smashing someone in a tackle and totally dominating a matchup physically and mentally? Abby Wambach, the great US forward, certainly did this over the course of her amazing career. If you work your socks off in practice and relish the physical side of the game, surely you get to enjoy and utilize the benefits during the game. My colleague said that despite females being encouraged to be more aggressive and competitive, the bottom line is most aren't. It has not been fully ingrained in their DNA yet, Abby Wambach aside. Winning still creates the internal conflict of being the best along with social acceptance, feeling good, and of course, feeling guilty. The byproduct of this is that some feel wronged by the victor and act out in ways that with hindsight, they regret. As a coach of females, it's your job to normalize athletic contests. It's your job to create an environment where the girls can battle one another, push one another, really fight for the ball, and then, at the end of practice, be friends again. 
You have to teach your players that it is their duty to play as hard as they can against each other, as it's the only way they'll become better players. There should be zero guilt attached to beating your opponent if you worked hard and honestly to attain an aggressive attitude or exceptional skill level. Now, I'm not saying that you have to do all of this by yourself, and you should definitely enlist the help of parents. However, you've got to recognize when it's getting a little nasty with petty jealousies rearing its ugly head. All too often, girls end up acting out their feelings of jealousy. They get angry at their opponents, friends for winning. If a teammate or friend beats them, they may respond by ostracizing them or socially punishing them. I've seen terrible things done on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. This has been done whether that player exhibited this kind of behavior or not. I've talked to many female soccer players over the years that were accused of obnoxious behaviors for one primary reason. They made the mistake of outperforming their friend or close teammate on the field. Working with parents, we need to teach these impressionable young ladies that losing is not a threat to self-esteem or worth. So as a coach, you can't be upset when you lose a game. Practice what you preach and model the behavior that you want your players to demonstrate. If you see your players acting out in a way that you consider inappropriate to the culture you are creating, you must call them out on it, just not in public. On the flip side, it's also your job to encourage your players to compete, play hard and strive for excellence. It's our job to make sure our players never have to apologize for doing their best. Soccer is the ultimate arena for young ladies to learn these lessons, own them, and grow with them. There is no question that many soccer players, male and female, have trouble with losing. Losing is not nearly as fun as winning. Losing can be frustrating, disappointing, and downright discouraging. If your ego or self-worth is tied up with the outcome of a result, then losing can be a big-time threat to your sense of self. In these situations, losing can trigger feelings of inadequacy, followed by protective surges of anger and even rage. Most serious soccer players hate losing with a passion. However, regardless of how unpleasant losing may be, all of us need to learn how to appropriately handle this sometimes unpleasant but very valuable and common life experience. As a coach of competitive soccer players, it is partially your job to teach your players how to handle events that don't go the player's way. I say partially because some of the responsibility for imparting these important lessons also lies with your player's parents. Your office. How many times have parents come up to you after a dazzling win and said, great game coach? I'm betting quite a few of you have heard this. However, how many of you have replied with, it was nothing to do with me. It was all the players doing. I've been saying this to parents for years in the hope that they'll understand when the shoe is on the other foot and we've just been hammered. That they'll say, hard luck coach, your players were poor today. That's never going to happen, is it? Now, how many coaches do you know who take credit for every little thing that their players do? I'm guessing that every single one of you runs in the opposite direction when Billy Big Boots shows up. You know him because the first time things go wrong, he bashes his players and avoids taking any responsibility whatsoever when his team falls apart, as they inevitably do. It's always someone else's fault. The referee had a shocker. The pitch was terrible. I was missing my best player, etc., etc. The list of excuses is longer than Pinocchio's nose, and the attitude 
incredibly simplistic. Had you done exactly what I asked, then you wouldn't have had any problems and would have performed the way that you were supposed to. The fact that you didn't is clear proof that you screwed up. Trust me, you never want to be this coach. And if you have a sneaking feeling that you might be heading down this wrong path, it's time to change. Think about what a nightmare it is to work with players who hold this kind of attitude. They've never made a mistake in their lives. And if someone should be held accountable, they are the first ones to point the finger of blame away from themselves and at everyone else, including you, the coach. Whenever they do make a mistake, they're ready with a litany of excuses which they'll use with the skill of a trained lawyer to take the heat off them and back onto their teammates and you again. They don't take constructive criticism easily, if at all, because they think that they are always right. We've all had these types of players before, and they are a pain in the butt. Admittedly, some do change, but the majority remain uncoachable, and you're better off without them. So now turn the table quickly and reflect that kind of attitude back to your players. Could you imagine playing for a coach like that? A coach who can't handle losses, a coach who can't communicate, a coach who looks at feedback as a full frontal attack on his character, a coach who above all is always right. No one in their right mind is going to enjoy playing for that person. And if we're honest, that's the person that drives players away from the game, sucking out their love and passion. One of the most powerful tools you have as a coach is empathy, otherwise known as the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. The moment you take the time to understand what your players are going through and where they are coming from, you develop some serious allies. You will instantly become a more effective coach. I guarantee it. When you are tuned into the emotional pulse of your players and team, you will help them feel understood, listened to, and, as a result, cared for. Since the glue that holds your teaching together as a coach is the quality of the relationship that you build with your players, your concern for and sensitivity to where your players are emotionally coming from will help you build the highest quality coach-player relationship possible. Stop and think about your experiences, your knowledge, and your skills. I'm sure they're incredible but they'll only be effective and useful if you have developed real relationships with your players where they listen to you. If you alienate and turn them off because of your impatience and disrespectful behavior, if you yell at them continually, deliberately play head games or embarrass them in front of their peers whenever they make mistakes or lose, then they will not be able to use what you teach them. Ultimately, they will lose respect for you and tune you out. Losing a team. Losing the locker room is a very painful and scarring experience. I was coaching a very high level girls U17 premier team. 85% of them were college bound and we were flying near the top of the league. But then I let my ambition get in the way of my relationships with them. I allowed winning to become more important and I can vividly remember the day I lost them as a team. We were playing a team that we had comfortably beaten not more than six weeks previously. However, my attitude in practices and games had been worsening in the weeks leading up to this match. The pressure I had created around winning had started to get to me. We had a free kick and my player miskicked the ball to our opponents, to which I cried out, We're the team in blue! They're the team in white! Please, for the love of God, kick it to someone in blue! We never won another game and I was sacked six weeks later. And deservedly so. What a clown. What I had needed to do was look in the mirror and give myself a real good talking to. 
My ego, which was wrapped up in winning, needed to chill out. I needed to understand that regardless of level and ability, players will always make mistakes, just like coaches and just like real life. Instead of using this opportunity to crush the poor young girl who had made a mistake, it was in fact the perfect moment to teach. Have patience and be a real coach instead of an emotionally out of control alien. Having awareness of how you internally respond to failure and then how you tend to overtly deal with it with your players will make you a better, more effective coach. Being unaware of your emotional responses will mean that the cycle will never be broken and you'll always be wondering why you got canned from yet another coaching gig when you're actually a decent coach with the X's and O's. I get it that here in the US, the coach is God, especially in sports like American football and basketball. However, let me take a quick time out to borrow a phrase from those sports. I was coaching the boys' soccer team at a school where American football was the sport. And as we play in different seasons, I thought I'd check on a couple of my players who were dual sports athletes. The football team was having a debrief after a loss, so I was waiting around to chat with my players about how they were enjoying the season and to ask what kind of work they were doing to keep themselves in shape for soccer when the coach went absolutely crazy on them. You played like a bunch of girls out there, he barked. It makes me sick to my stomach to even think that I have to call myself your coach. The bottom line is this, ladies, you totally stink and you're not worthy of the uniform you're currently wearing. You proved that today over and over again. You're in total embarrassment to me, our coaching staff, and your school. Can you imagine being on the end of that? Yeah, it was a big loss, but what can you take away from that emotional outburst? Would it motivate you, inspire you? Would you want to work hard for that coach? How's your self-esteem after that, your confidence? Yes, it wasn't a great performance by the team and everyone knew it, but were there any lessons in that outburst that would help the players become better? Did they get information on how to fix their play for the future? Will they be inclined to listen to the coach moving forward? Or did the tune-out process already begin? I think we all know the answer to these very basic questions, but you only have to fly off the handle once to lose all the credit you've built up. And in return, you just might find yourself dealing with players who fly off the handle at you because they've seen how their coach does it. Now, of course, American football does have a macho culture surrounding the sport, but this is not how a youth sports coach should react. Who wants to be known as the bully or the coach who exemplifies poor behavior? I get that sometimes we need a reaction from our players, and I've even choreographed a meltdown or two. However, the ultimate goal is to be the role model you wanted your coaches to be. So then why do some coaches insist on continuing to behave this way whenever their players fail? Perhaps some of this can be attributed to bad modeling. Maybe these coaches are just continuing to do to their players what was done to them when they were younger and they played. Too often this bad behavior comes directly from the coach's ego and self-worth being tied up in their athletes' performances. Simply put, when your ego is on the line every time your team plays, you won't handle losing very well. Players need to know that losing is a part of sports. Yes, we love to win, but we can't lose sight of doing our best because the beauty of soccer is that it doesn't always reward the best team. A coach's influence on a young child is extremely important. The effect that a coach has could last for an extended period of time, far beyond the season. Therefore, your personality, action, and words could have a dramatic positive or negative effect on each and every child. 
The value of understanding children, being fair and enthusiastic, as well as being a positive role model, can never be underestimated. I'll finish this chapter with a quote from Apollo Ono, who, as you may remember, was a fantastic skater in the Olympics. He says, It's not up to me whether I win or lose. Ultimately, this might not be my day. And it is that philosophy towards sports, something that I really truly live by. I am emotional. I want to win. I am hungry. I am a competitor. I have that fire, but deep down, I truly enjoy the art of competing so much more than the result. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Bear and the Ball. And remember, you can always find me on Twitter at Nick Webster. And you can find Cal South at Cal South Soccer on Twitter, at Cal South Soccer on Instagram. And of course, you can find us on Facebook. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Pair and the Ball. Until then, I'll see you out on the field. <laughs>